When Dr Natalie Robinson and her team of scientists were getting ready for their annual trip to Antarctica late last year, they were confronted by something they'd never experienced, the prospect of no ice to camp on. We know from our experience in McMurdo Sound that it is susceptible to these windstorms and that that can have a fairly significant effect on you know, the nature of the sea ice and perhaps the extent of it in McMurdo Sound. To have no sea ice at all for the first six months of the growing season was completely unprecedented and beyond anything that we could plan for. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and today's detail is about Antarctic sea ice and the crucial role it plays in keeping the planet cool and keeping many of our species, like the emperor penguin, alive. We're becoming quite familiar with Antarctica's role in terms of sea level rise, but what might be less familiar is that with these changes in how the sea ice is forming, how the storms are happening, changes to the whole oceanic system will feed through to significant changes in heat distribution around the globe. It will also change how the ocean is structured and that will have flow-on effects for the whole ecosystem. Later in the podcast we'll talk to Dr Inga Smith, Otago University physicist, about why she still can't study a big block of ice flown from Antarctica months ago. And the sea ice cores have been stuck in Christchurch for the last couple of months because the price of freight has gone through the roof. But back to that four-week camp last October and the warning signs. <laughs> Blizzards are synonymous with Antarctica and McMurdo Sound is susceptible to those windstorms. But for me was Natalie Robinson, who's been going there for 20 years, this was something else. So normally in McMurdo Sound we would have the sea ice starting to form, starting to settle in sort of February and then with a really excellent growing season it'll just stay and continue to grow all through the season until we arrive sort of six or seven months later. But in this particular year there was a series of southerly storms that just kept blowing through so as the sea ice was starting to form the a new storm would come through and blow it all away and so we came right as far as August right into late August and basically there was no sea ice in McMurdo Sound there was only a tiny wee corner that was very close to Scott Base that had been there since February and had stayed in place and just grown what you, what you might call in a normal fashion um, for the whole winter. But apart from that, there was no sea ice right up till the end of August. And so six weeks before we were due to fly south to Antarctica, we still didn't know if we were going to go at all. <laughs> because that particular ice may not may not have been available for you to work on. Yes, that's right. It certainly was strong enough to hold our camp, but the actual access points from Scott Base onto the sea ice itself uh, weren't established and were looking potentially unusable. Scott Base, Scott Base, K892. Good morning, K892. This is Scott Base. So let's, let's actually talk about the camp because we're not just talking about putting up a few tents are we? That's right. 
So our container camp that Niwa owns is a series of converted shipping containers and they live at Scott Base. And then come our field season, they can get dragged out onto the sea ice uh, in a train basically behind a bulldozer. It means we're pretty much protected from whatever weather comes along. Another major advantage is that a couple of those containers have holes in the floor. So we can lift out that section of floor and then melt through the sea ice that's under our feet. And then, for my purposes, I'm an oceanographer, Mm. so then we get um, access to the ocean directly from the floor of our container. So when you talk about, you know, you're sheltered from the weather, what, what is the weather like there? At the start of the summer season when we're there, we're expecting temperatures of about minus 20-ish, um, and then we add some wind chill onto that. So we can quite often get up to sort of minus 30, minus 40 with wind chill. When there's snow, it's not very often that it's actually new snow falling, but much more often that we're just getting snow that's being blown around, which means it can be blown around right at the level we are, but you can look up and see a completely clear sky while you're in the middle of a a blizzard. (laughs) With these unusual sea ice conditions last um, October, November, you had to change the location. Yes, we had to change the location of our camp um, because we could only work on the sea ice that had been there all winter and was strong enough to hold the camp and, of course, the vehicles that pull it out. So that restricted us to this very small sort of corner of McMurdo Sound immediately adjacent to Scott Base. Today is not actually as cold as some of the other days we've worked in, as long as you can stay out of the wind. But that wind is um, oh, it's really biting today. In some senses we were quite fortunate in the end because in those final six weeks before we arrived, the rest of McMurdo Sound did start to fill with sea ice. The winds calmed down for long enough for it to settle and generate what we call fast ice. And it's fast ice because it's fast to the land, which means we can drive onto it. So what we were able to do was have our camp on this small patch of older ice, but we were able to travel on a daily basis off onto this new ice, which set up quite an interesting um, experiment for us that we hadn't planned for, but to be comparing the type of ice, but also more importantly the ecosystem associated with it, with what we might call a normal sea ice conditions, Mm. and then we could drive some uh, 20 or 30 kilometres north and be sampling what was essentially a brand new ecosystem. So the the sea ice in that case was a bit over a metre thick and then we're sampling the biology underneath it that instead of having the full seven months to develop um, has only had about six weeks to develop. So you can imagine some quite significant differences that we were able to observe. What we have down here is the last plug of sea ice sitting in the core barrel waiting for us to extract it. Can you give me some examples, the things that really um, stood out for you and those differences? What was immediately apparent was that um, the structure of the sea ice and the snow on top were quite different. The newer ice had had to thicken much much more rapidly and it had a very thin layer of snow on top. So what that meant was that the light that was entering the ocean 
was much more intense in that case than it was under the older ice because both the ice was thicker and also the snow cover on top was much thicker. And then in terms of the actual biology, we were mostly interested in algae, which are the base of the food chain. These are the grass meadows of the ocean. And so because of those much higher light levels, it was much higher in abundance beneath that newer ice. And then that feeds through to all of the rest of the food chain. It underpins the food chain. The sun, shining through the ice, sparks the growth of green algae, which feed the krill. What we can actually see when we've put our live cameras down are the fish that come and um, feed on the, the algae that's drifting down through the water column. Those fish are feeding the species that we might be more familiar with, so the Weddell seals and the uh, emperor penguins and even the orca when the sea ice opens up again come the summer. Can you explain to me why this is all so significant? Why these unusual sea ice conditions, how they fit into this research into the loss of sea ice and climate change? So that's an interesting question because... um, It's not necessarily related to climate change. The connection to climate change might be a little bit indirect because we know that this particular year it was extremely unusual and there's been no record of sea ice anything like this in the last 45-ish years, the satellite era. But we know that in this case it was not directly caused by you know warming ocean but by this increase of um, storm events. But in turn those storm events could very easily be related to climate change, just changing the way that the atmosphere is set up um, in the preceding months. And so in the end, that was why we found it was really critical to to go and do what we could this season, uh, because even though it might not be a scenario that we expect to see for another few years again, it's certainly moving towards a scenario that we are expecting. So that would be sea ice forming later in the season, um, forming thinner ultimately, and perhaps to a lesser extent as you go northward as well. Let's talk to physicist Dr Inga Smith, who studies Antarctic sea ice mostly in her lab at Otago University. But here's the thing. She knows this year's ice core is much smaller because of those unusual conditions, although it still hasn't arrived in Dunedin. So the cores, they're about 19 centimetres in diameter and uh, usually about two to two and a half metres long, um, which is the thickness of the ice that would be um, camped on if we're down there. Although this past season we've had some cores uh, shipped back to us and those are only about 1.3 metres thick. The chunk of sea ice that you got from the last season compared Mm. with previous seasons, is it different apart from its size? It's a very good question. So I wasn't down, unfortunately, last season, so I didn't get to see this very interesting sea ice in situ. And the sea ice cores have been stuck in Christchurch for the last couple of months because the price of freight has gone through the roof. So we've been desperately trying to find a freight company that will bring it south. But um, I think in the last couple of days we've found someone that will actually bring it to Otago and I'll finally be able to have a look at it. 
Can you explain to me how you even get such a huge block of sea ice from Antarctica up to Christchurch? I mean, how is it even, mm. you know, put onto the ship? Yeah, so it's actually flown. Um, oh. And they package them up in um, plastic wrap, normally in core tubes. And then we've got a giant plastic suitcase, basically, um, that's a waterproof container that they're put into. Um, and uh, it's stored at Scott Base in the science freezer there, and then the cargo person will put it on a, a flight. So they'll drive it out to the airfield, uh, put it on usually the C-17 flights are the ones that we prefer to use because they only take five hours to get back. Um, and then Paul will go to Antarctica, New Zealand, or meet the cargo, um, deal with the paperwork because it's classified as a biohazard and yeah. so it needs MPI approval. Um, it'll be put into an approved um, storage facility up there. And then that's one of the, the reasons that we've got to have it um, properly freighted down is because we've got a Ministry for Primary Industry certified cold rooms um, in the physics department and we have to um, transfer it straight into the lab and deal with the paperwork once it arrives. Gosh, I've got a lot of questions out of that. How much does something like that weigh? So that container is normally about 20 kgs. And does it melt? Yeah, so sea ice is a, a really interesting um, material. So the temperature at the surface when they took these sea ice cores was around minus 20 degrees Celsius. But the ocean at the bottom um, of the sea ice is around minus 1.9 degrees Celsius. So there's a very strong temperature gradient through the ice. It's minus 20 at the top, but it's close to minus 2 at the bottom. And sea ice is at its happiest when it's minus 15 or colder. Um, if it's warmer than that, which the bottom part of that sea ice core will be, then the brine starts to drain out. So that concentrated seawater actually starts to drain out of the, the sea ice core if it's removed from the water. And so um, as soon as you start shipping it, you have to put it immediately into a freezer if you can to, to stop any of that brine draining out. So it's not so much that it melts, it's that it internally disintegrates. Why is it a biohazard to New Zealand? I'm not a biologist by a long shot, but there's algae that grows at the bottom of the sea ice, and there'll be other things in there as well. So it's not a very serious biohazard, but we just want to make sure that it doesn't get out. The overall aim of your research is to understand how Antarctic sea ice will change over the next century. That's the thing, isn't it, Inga? There's a lot that's not known about Antarctic sea ice. Yeah, in terms of glaciology, sea ice physics is actually a relatively young field, so it kind of came to the fore in the 1970s. There was work done as far back as Scott, but it's a very specific discipline. And uh, sea ice itself has become sort of more prominent in recent years because of the changes in the Arctic. Have you seen Scott's work on this? Yeah, so it wasn't Scott himself so much as um, some of the scientists that he took down. So um, Wright and Priestley uh, were two of them that um, wrote a volume on glaciology. But it is really helpful in terms of some of those early observations of what they were seeing in McMurdo Sound in terms of um, ice formation. So what do you know from what they saw then and what you see now in terms of sea ice? So McMurdo Sound is a really interesting place to look at in terms of uh, the interactions with ice shelves and sea ice. On its eastern side it's bounded by Ross Island and then on the western side uh, bounded by mainland Antarctica. Uh, it's not a true sound either because its southern end is defined by the front of the ice shelf, which is not land but a large floating shelf of ice. So what my group's interested in is that interaction between that floating 
freshwater glacier ice, the ice shelf, and the frozen seawater, the sea ice. And in McMurdo Sound, you get uh, what's called ice shelf water, so meltwater, fresh meltwater from underneath the ice shelf is mixed in with the seawater. It's still a liquid, but it's actually below the freezing point temperature. And so when it freezes, it sort of snap freezes. We don't completely understand the process. But you end up with ice crystals that look like leaves. Um, and so my PhD was very focused on the, form, the process of that platelet ice, is what we call it, when it's under the sea ice, and how that um, was incorporated into the ice and how that influenced the sea ice. From my reading, I understand now that it is absolutely a crucial part to keeping mm-hmm. the Earth Cool. Yeah, so in terms of climate, sea ice has three main factors that it contributes to. So it's white and therefore it's very reflective of sunlight. And if it's reflecting sunlight, then that's part of keeping Earth cool. Um, so more heat in the ocean, warming the sea ice, causing less sea ice, which leads more heating of the ocean. The other two things that sea ice contributes to in terms of climate is uh, that it acts as an insulating layer. So um, it stops heat going from the warm ocean uh, to the atmosphere. And the third aspect is that when the sea ice forms, it rejects brine, and that concentrated uh, cold salt water uh, then sinks. And if it's in an area where there's a lot of sea ice production, uh, then it will form a lot of that very dense water, and that forms something called Antarctic bottom water. So if you get the sea ice blown away and therefore lots of that salt rejection, then you form Antarctic bottom water, which, as the name suggests, it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and it forms the deep convection cell of the Earth's um, overturning circulation, which is how we um, transfer heat through the ocean from the equator to the poles and then um, cold water draining back at, at the base. And we've heard a bit about the bottom water in recent news reports that it's in trouble. A new study shows deep ocean currents around Antarctica that circulate nutrients, which are the base of the food chain, are set to significantly weaken by 40% by 2050 and could be headed for collapse. So, just to be clear, you are looking for any changes in the sea ice to try and understand and, I guess, predict what will happen over the next 100 years? Yeah, there hasn't been a lot of change um, in McMurdo Sound over the last 100 years. So what we've been looking at is what's the baseline and so what was unusual about 2022 is that, like the, at least in our recent experience, the baseline was that there was always ice for 15 to 30 kilometres out that vehicles could be driven out and our equipment could be deployed on. Um, but that wasn't the case last winter. And so what Marin Richter has just applied for funding uh, from the Antarctic Science Platform to look at is how much can we say was different about 2022 from, from the baseline. Is this what our future will be or is it, is it just a one-off? That's a very good question. All the climate models predict that as the world warms, you'll have less Antarctic sea ice. Uh, And that has actually been a bit of a mystery because it hasn't responded as quickly as a lot of the climate models thought it would. But um, around the whole of Antarctica in the last two years, the summer sea ice has been at record lows. So the numbers that people usually say is Antarctic sea ice is around 18 million square kilometres in the winter and it gets down to around 2 million square kilometres in the summer. Mm. But actually this most recent summer it's been even lower than 2 million square kilometres. And people are still investigating exactly what's happened because there's different things happening in different regions, but overall the average is a lot lower. It's really critical for a lot of species that the sea ice forms 
as it always has and in the places that it always has. And when we're talking about the emperor penguins, they actually breed on the sea ice. They use their sea ice to raise their young. So if we're talking about a diminishing area of sea ice or um, distribution of sea ice, then those um, approximately 54 colonies of emperor penguins around Antarctica are all at risk of not being able to reproduce effectively. If we keep doing what we're doing, then the best estimates suggest that emperor penguin numbers around Antarctica will decline by 90% come 2100. And those that are left will be much less resilient because they have fewer choices about where to breed and who to breed with. What I get from this is that this is urgent and serious. There are more than 100 scientists working in unison on the Antarctic science platform on the climate change questions. I mean, that's incredible. And, and they range from field work to analysis and modelling. So they range from people who are actually going down to Antarctica to collect new data um, to people who are incorporating those data into our sort of global simulations of um, the models that forecast what climate might look like. But we're also working with people who draw down data from the satellites and they're analysing what's happening from space effectively. What now, Natalie? What now? We have an opportunity as a society to make things better than they would otherwise be. The window for that opportunity is closing because there are thresholds that are going to be met and we cannot reverse them. So if we take that 90% of the emperor penguins as an example, we have an opportunity to reduce that down to only a 40% loss instead of a 90% loss by the end of the century. That will require heavy and immediate reductions in our fossil fuel emissions, but it can be done with the right social will and political will. From a distance, all of this is so alarming and sad. How does it make you feel? I've definitely had phases where I found it hard to sleep at night because it is really so devastating, and especially because I have children... But I'm, I've managed to get past that and I enjoy the relationship that I have with Antarctica. I find it refreshing um, and it's you know, part of keeping me sane to actually go there and collect new data and try to be part of the solution, both in terms of delivering the science that we need to inform you know, large-scale and immediate decisions but also in terms of sharing Antarctica with the world and trying to make people care about it. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by Blair Stagpole. Now producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Natalie Robinson and Inga Smith. And also to Vanessa Wells for the clips from a documentary featuring Natalie called The Climate Canary out sometime next year. Kakite anō.